How's it going? Welcome to the Who's Your Mob podcast. This is James Henry, and this is my first interstate podcast. I was up in Sydney over Christmas and made the most of my time up there by catching up with a couple of people and having a bit of a sit down and chat. And one of those people was my cousin, Nardi Simpson of the Stiff Gins. It's amazing how many different things we have in common. We were going to Eora TAFE, this small little TAFE in the inner west of Sydney uh, in Darlington back in 1998. At the same time, I was doing a bit of theatre there and she was doing the music course. And we were over in England playing cricket at the same time back in 1993. Uh, she was over there, uh, I guess, talk a little bit about that in the podcast. We also happen to be related and our mob coming from Walgett and Anguadal and you know, these are parts in rural, remote western New South Wales with you know, a town of only I think about 2,000 people these days. So yeah, very nice to have that connection with someone who is also doing a bit of music and also doing great work in trying to revive and give new context to her language, and which is our language. Wonderful to have a chat with her and good fun to catch up around Christmas time. And I hope you find what we have to say a little bit interesting. I'm Yularoi woman, northwest New South Wales. Uh, grandparents born and brought up in Angledoo, uh on mission out there, and then moved into Walgett, out on the river first and then into town. Uh, and so my family, Simpsons and Sands, Sands come just from over the border in Dirrimbandi, so it's all Yularoi country. Um, but also, our great-grandfather spent a lot of time over in, or born between Walgett and Brewarrina. Mm. That's, that's our mob yeah. over there, Simpson. So a lot of mob in Bree as well uh, as Walgett. So branches of the family. And then interestingly, ages ago, I found out that the two, there are Simpsons down south in Narandra and down that way. Uh, Aboriginal mob, but we always thought that no relation. But we're, we're related distantly through those first two white Simpsons that came out. So one brother stayed in Hay and in that area and one went up to Walgett. So oh, wow. those, okay. the, the other um, Koori Simpsons down south were related to through the non-Indigenous ancestors, two brothers. Yeah. Yeah, so... But northwest, all that river country out there, flat plains and um, narrow lakes is an important part, place for us. Yeah. Yeah. And so what that Simpson would be, would have been like a mission manager or just follow that just hooked up with her? Uh, worked on Burrama Station, which is near Narran Lake. So they managed um, cattle stations, not so much in the missions, mm. uh, but all working on the, on the stations out there. Uh, that's where those two brothers, they came from Yorkshire and they came, came across and one stayed south, one went up north. So... Yeah, right. That's where the name comes from anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a common ancestor, yeah. so I've just got to try and work this out. It's probably not good podcast listening, but <laughs> so we can just figure this out. Yeah. Um, do you know, um, just yep. to give context? So um, 
my my pup George Simpson. Yep. And Dory Simpson. Yep. Your nan. Yep. My my great great grandmother, yeah. uh, yep. brother and sister. Yeah. And descendants of those Simpsons. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Going back, so I guess where what does that make us? I don't know. Yeah. Second cousins or something. Our, our parents are cousins. Yeah. And then we're the next wave. Yeah. And I guess it is a little bit tricky with me because my grandmother and my mother both had children early. So mm. I'm kind of, you yeah. know, this next generation, but I'm a similar age to yeah. people of the generation before. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, I got cousins, yeah, that are younger than me that mm. the previous generation so mm. I'd probably technically call them uncle and auntie yeah. but yeah. yeah I won't be doing that yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a few of those my bay yeah that want you to call <laughs> call them uncle yeah and uh or aunt anyway so you're saying like Uluroi yeah it's funny um yeah. I know like growing up I was always you know like told I was like Camilla Roy yeah. and, and now I only ever grew up, you know, seeing it spelled with a K yeah. and then now it's spelled with a G and yeah. then like, you know, hearing more about, you know, Uluroy or uh, Uralaroy. Yeah. So what's, what's the difference between, you know, yeah. each of those, so Camilleroy, Uralaroy and yeah. Uluroy? Yeah. yeah. It's, um, so I think originally when they first started, uh, well, first of all, our mob always knew who we were. It was said in different ways, probably because pe because of those missions, people were brought together from, you know, there are people from South Australia, Tipperbara, out at mm. Angledool, you know, so that's how far people moved. And the different way that those places were called would have had something to do with the different dialects in that area. So you, I say Yularoi, um, linguists spell it Yualarai, um, it was written down by Langlo Parker in those early texts as U-L-E-I. Um, and I think that sort of went quiet for a while because um, anthropologists and all that mob did studies about the Camilleroy tribe. So anywhere mm. in that region um, was thought that Camilleroy, Camilleroy dominated that part of that area. And you know, we're, our mob's still not on that IATSIS map. You know, Uluru country yeah. isn't on that colourful, pretty map. Yeah, yeah. Because I think um, it was thought that that whole region, and some people say up up into um, that part of Queensland, is all Gamilaroi country, just because it was um, a, a dominant place. Mm. And so the, the regionality or the variations in the subtleties in the variations of the people and the language were lost because it was easier at that time for those people to focus on big chunks of places. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's the story in New South Wales, starting to see, you know, a lot of clans and people come, come back and say, well, actually, we're this but part of this mob, mm. you know. So it's really interesting to see those, it's like flowers, you know, how they, they bloom, they're coming back and people are... Um, reasserting their individuality not so much their aboriginality because that was the fight of the 70s mm, yeah right and now it's saying well you know it's much more complex than that mm. and then the way we call our mob is a perfect perfect example so come yeah. milleroy gum milleroy um maureen mob call it gummeroy 
Yeah. It's all the same word, it's just spoken differently according to where you are in place Wait, and you what your language was. Uh, yeah, so I guess you have different missions and so different areas and now you know, I guess people have more of a connection to specific towns and, mm. and certain families that they might have grew up with you know, on, on the mission and that. You know, there possibly is something to be said for the fact that you know this massive you know Gamilaroi tribe is actually a, a whole different bunch of yeah. towns now. Yeah, I think now towns are towns are beacons to identity because, well, for a lot of reasons, it has a lot to do with movement. Um, and you know it's it's interesting in Sydney when you ask a young kid in primary school where they're from, they'll tell you the suburb they live in. Mm. So the context of that question is changing for our people, because you know when people ask me where I'm from, I say, well, I live in Sydney. My my mob is from Walgut, but originally um, they are from Angledo. So the answer to those questions is about journeying and the relationship through different places. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll get on to this a little bit more later, but uh, just getting back to, so Camilla Roy and yep. Ularoy. Yep. So is there a, some kind of border or what is it that separates the two? Yeah, um, I think people think generally just north of Walgut and there would of course in the old days been physical, natural things. Actually, probably stories, mm. a storyline that said this is where uh, responsibility for one thing stops and uh, for, for the next thing starts. Mm. Um, so, you know, there are people who know much better than me where physical boundaries are in our country, but we know somewhere between Walgut and um, Lightning Ridge and up through to the border up near Narran River going up that way. Mm. Um, that's, that's the people and the stories and the whatever belonging to Yularoya, Yualaray, Yuliai, however you're going to call it. Yeah, so people won't be offended if you kind of have your own pronunciation of the tribe name? No, well, that's a really good question too. I think, uh, I think it's important for us to get away from what's right and what's wrong because, you know, nothing... The fact that you can say, well, people call it this there and that there and that there, but we're all connected, mm. shows that you have a deeper interaction, understanding, feeling with that place yeah. rather than saying... Because it's never just one thing, yeah. you know. You're, you're, who you are is never just one word mm. for anything, whether you're black or white or whatever. But um, being able to say, well, being able to talk about the complexity shows that there is uh, a deeper meaning than just a physical place for you. Yeah, yeah. Do you get uh, some leeway then with language and when you're, when you're singing language, do, is there somewhat of uh, some flexibility to mm -hmm. be able to fit it into a particular verse or yeah. just have you, uh, having to also reclaim a lot of language yeah. that they wouldn't have heard before. Yeah. See, that's really, I love thinking about that because I think the answer to that now is very different to what it would have been, you know. Obviously, 
um, in the days of many fluent speakers because um, not only are there are we reconstructing the words but we don't know the truth um, so the rules we don't know what the rules were and we're trying to somehow create something that had the basis of the structure but also allowing Aboriginal people to empower themselves to learn and use language mm. and those two things are sometimes in um, in conflict with each other yeah so of course there is leeway you can speak the language however you want because there is a part of us that you know sit in at the end of 2017 when we say it's been quiet for too long we just need to start doing it mm. um, but then there's also uh, the structures and complexity of of the essence or the identity of the language that we actually can only guess at now and so by saying that we should just speak it however it comes is that compromising yeah. what it actually is I don't know what the answer is but I know that there's things in between um, thinking around that stuff that we can talk about as communities about the business of speaking and writing and singing language which is something we haven't engaged with we're just engaging with doing it mm. because we've not had it for so long well how do you go about relearning language yeah i think first of all well i came i came at it from a selfish point of view that i, I was a singer and a writer and uh, i i did it to connect to a physical a place that I was physically away from and so that dictated how I interacted with it so we have a wonderful dictionary but it's not people speaking mm. we have we're very lucky Yulroy mob to have a lot of resources of um, recorded stories uh, and two songs old songs we've got and and they I found them down at IATSIS and I listened to that um, I did it with my sisters because we wanted to, we didn't want it to be a resource. We wanted it to have a meaning, but also for, for it to create or give us a part of ourselves that we didn't have. Mm. So while we were writing songs, I think the point of it was to deepen our relationship to place and to people. Yeah. But the physical way of it was um, the way that you would write a song with a dictionary there yeah, on yeah. the table. And, you know, looking back at those things now, I think I would do it differently. Okay. And, it, you know, but like again, how we said, is it important that you just do it? Mm. And then know how to do it properly afterwards? I don't know. Did I have to do that step first to to be able to think about how then to do it right. Yeah. I don't know. Well, how would you do it differently now? Yeah, I think that I would, uh, and actually what's changed between now and then is this, I don't know what the word is. It's not a movement. It is a movement, but it's not. It's uh, the recognition of where languages were and where they are now and where they can be. So. Um, 
legislation come through New South Wales Parliament to support language, New South Wales languages, uh, the teaching and learning of New South Wales languages. So that means that there's going to be a whole structure mm. um, in place for kids to learn language in schools, but also for communities to teach um, language. And that didn't, that wasn't around uh, 15 years ago. There were just a couple of courses you could do. There was Brother John Jacon, who's a really, he's a sort of a knowledge keeper for Gamilaroi language, who will always do a community course for nothing if he's in town, he will always do that. So we only had him and a dictionary yeah. in the beginning, but now we have our own mob talking about, and it's like all the old fellas too talking about, even if it's not physical language words, talking about, um, why they weren't allowed to say it, or what they said when uh, they could. And all those things feed into the life of the words. So it's, it's at, on a cusp, and I think too also, uh, when they have, you know, NADOC for me used to be gigs. <laughs> we, used to, we used to have gigs, and we could go around and we could sing and celebrate. And I never really engaged with I knew it was time to celebrate, but those themes, you know, but it was only until, um, the, I think it was two years ago, Soul Alliance, and then this year was Our Languages Matter, and when enough people say it, something happens. Yeah, yeah. And it's coming up, and it's, it's got a force of its own that people are connecting to, so um, it's a really interesting time for all that stuff. Mm. You're just getting back to how you went about writing songs. Yeah. So you're sitting there with a dictionary. Yeah. And are these in the folk stylings of stiff gins? Or like when you're writing in language, do you have a different take on melody and structure? Yeah. Um, what, what we did do was when I looked in the archives, there were two songs down there. One was a, um, a song that they used to sing at a funeral to take, sing the body out of its physical form. And that's the only um, Uluroi melody that seems to be around that I can find or um, I've spoken to others about. Um, so I looked at that song, I didn't recreate that because when you're starting out, you know, you don't start, that's, that's not a resource. Um, when you're starting out, there are things you need to understand and respect. Um, so I knew that that was there, but there were the, tr the transcripts and, of that and looking at how those words were translated showed me how I could mirror the same type of thing in a, in a modern song. So it would be, and it was very sort of, um, not simple, but it was really really sort of instruction-based lines. Um, um, they're, they're collecting the leaves. They're lighting the leaves now. The leaves are smoking up. So things like that, and they were mm. your lines. So then I could see, okay, well, this is an old song. Um, this is how it works for this thing. Um, and I think I transformed those simple uh, instructions or whatever it was, simple sentences about very, oh, can't think of the right words, not obvious, but physical things. Um, and knowing a little bit about other mobs' music and knowing that a lot of those um, dreamy stories and all that are about how 
things move through place and it's, it is a story told sequentially in those type of, about that movement. And so I wrote songs, you know, that mirrored that in a Narragawa way. <laughs> you know, about song about opal mining, you know, or looking for opal. Um, uh, look over this way for a, for a stone that looks like a rainbow. Pick it up and lick it. Let the sun shine. Um, put it in your pocket and say nothing. So that was how, that, that was the beginnings of me doing that. Mm. And some, uh, somehow I liked, I hoped that it reflected the structure, the translation of how those words sat yeah. um, in life back then. Yeah. So this recording, what context was it in? Was it, did it seem like it was recorded as part of a ceremony or, or someone yeah. was, was just talking about songs and then they just, oh, so there's this song that goes like this and yeah. then they'll sing the song. Yeah, so um, Janet Matthews sat with um, Fred Reese out at Lightning Ridge in the 80s, I think, in, on, around the 80s, 1980. And sort of, and there are actually, there are a lot of, um, she had a few informants but he and Arthur Dodd from Walgett were the main ones. And um, she said, now, do you know any songs? And you're listening to, you know, an 80-year-old man trying to remember things that he hadn't spoken about, you know, for 70 years. Mm. And then he only heard very rarely. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and listening to those tapes actually is a really good lesson in cross-cultural communication because now would you like to sing us a song huh? <laughs> do you know any songs you can sing okay. song it's like this you know you can see you can hear the backgrounds of these people mm. in their exchange so um he sang it he tapped it out and halfway through he, he sort of stumbled and, and he couldn't remember the words and and then he said, oh, I'm a forgetful old man. And she said, well, let's, let's think about, you know, do you know the word for this? And then he wouldn't play along. He'd, he'd say, no, I'm going to back, I want to think about that song. And so you could hear actually so much more than what you were getting. Mm, yeah, right. Because it was like, it was, James, like a, a, a peeping into the past. Mm with the language, but also, you know, the recent past with the man who was at the cusp of when language went quiet and trying to be, you know, trying to bring that back. And the woman who, for some reason, was interested in that. There's a whole lot of relationships going on in that one yeah. um, recording. Yeah, and no, it's fascinating. I've been listening to some, uh, some recordings. It was like Alice Moyle and yeah. uh, Catherine Ellis yeah. and, like, you know, out in the the remote parts yeah. back in the 50s and 60s yeah. and yeah it's yeah such a yeah. culture clash I, I guess it's yeah. probably not too different you know from you know like when you see some politicians you know heading yes. up into those parts and yeah. yeah no it is quite fascinating yeah. and also to I guess acknowledge how I guess we're sitting somewhere in the in yeah. the middle of that right. as well that's right um fair in the middle of it as inheritors and also as creative people, you know, we have, there's a set of rules that we, we should be bound by, but also the freedom to create. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So when you were saying before that there are certain things that you have to abide by and, mm. and, and things that you have to go through before using these songs, mm. and so what are they? Yeah, I was thinking about this before you came over and uh, I was thinking about that word protocols and uh, also knowing that we can actually never know the true context of language, of, of that old language. We only know, we can only engage with something today, context about today. And I think, and then, because I knew you were going to ask me this, and the cynic in me wants to say, well, you know, do we really have protocols? I don't know. I think, I often see, and I'm, I'm, I do it as well. Uh, I did it with those first lot of songs. I didn't go and ask anyone. I didn't show them and say, can I sing this? Um, so I think we talk about protocols a lot, but we're not that great in <laughs> yeah, yeah. either knowing, being able to recognise them, knowing what they are, supporting other people to yeah. um, uh, do, do it. Because we don't know, we're in that in-between space. So then, what are my protocols what is what are a set of values i guess that can be useful or you know should be part of the conversation when you think about writing songs in language and i go back to um there's a story out at up Uluroi mob in langlo parker she wrote about um a song she wrote the text of the lyrics of a song that the old girls would sing over their babies when they're born. And it's sort of like, you know, reading it now, what would you say? It's kind of like a prayer, but really it's like your first ceremony that happens over babies. And those words um, translated were, be kind, give unto others. So the first thing you must do is give, um, be generous and be strong. So if that was the first thing that was sung over babies, then generosity, strength and kindness are good enough for me as protocols. How does that work when you're making music? Well, um, I think being generous in music is, a, is a allowing everybody their own freedom to express themselves. Um, being kind is being kind to the past. So knowing that this existed before you even were thought of. And knowing that there are, that kindness is about respect, I think. So respecting the history of language, words and place. And being strong is to do speak about those things with conviction but also be strong enough to say you don't know everything so then writing a song in language it's not about the physical words that you're writing or the melody or it's about communing with a, or having a relationship with the people of the past and the people who are to come but also the place so if you can't write a song that doesn't deepen your understanding of yourself or yourself as a cultural person in that place. Don't do it. 
and then write that song not only to expand your understanding of your identity, but do it as a resource for others. Be generous. You know what I mean? So that's how, that's kind of how I can work out a song in language has a, has a cultural context that it's able to be used by others. You don't do it because you're looking for a new way to express yourself. You do it to learn and connect. Um, and when you do it, make it available. It make the song and the, the skills you have got from writing that available for uh, the, the collective. Yeah. That's what I think. That's, that's, that's the only things that I know I need to do. The other things like talking to elders and uh, uh, having people look over it and, and all that sort of other stuff which are modern day things that we would assume we have to do. Uh, that's a grey area for me. Mm. Because if you're writing a song because you want something in language on your next album, you haven't satisfied the cultural context of those that anyway. So you know what I mean? Yeah. If you want if you want a song to be on playing on Triple J in language and you go and show an elder, is that really paying respects to I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I know. I, I guess it's interesting. One, um, I know when you talk about that, there was uh, was it the band, the, the Preachers. They yes. they use um, yes, just um, yeah, uh, some Darug yep. language. Yep. Yeah, I, like for me, it's it's great to hear. You know, like the more Aboriginal language I can hear on the radio, the, the better. Yes. Um, there was also I was just watching the little video that they had where the I guess the Darug language yep. person was debating with herself w yep. whether you know she did allow them or not, mm. and then I know she left it up to the the spirits in a way that mm. yeah you know, I think she said mm. if she saw an eagle flying in you know within yes. I know three or four days yeah. then that would you know give her a sign yeah. and yeah I guess she ended up seeing an eagle. And everything you know went ahead, and it's a, it's a big hit, and all. Yeah. Um, but there's that fine line. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what what are your thoughts on? Because uh, uh, well, I've done a bit of work with Jacinta Tobin at the time, actually, that that the preacher's um, girl came up and asked her, and originally, they emailed us stiff gins to insert a uh, chorus in language. Uh, and the email, we didn't engage with it because I think that while we can hear that song and feel proud, what's the meaning for them? Mm -hmm. You know, and I know that that girl said that she has um, family in Gunnedah and doesn't know about them and had sent the song and then said, and in the, in the chorus where, uh, in the part of the chorus where they wanted Aboriginal stuff, she'd written nga 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 dee 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 like that in the thing. So she was just writing something. But that to me showed that, uh, and actually Jacinta is a good teacher. 
because I said no and Jacinta waited for an eagle. Uh, those two things had to happen so young Koori kids can hear that song and think that's awesome. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So, um, and then also interestingly what came out of that song was Terry Janke um, engaging with the band and with Jacinto cultural people um, talking about what are the what's the intellectual property around this stuff. So there was a whole thing that came out of that from that one request yeah. that is really complex, mm. you know, and... Mm. Well, I also find that there are a lot of non-Aboriginal people who seem genuinely interested in yes. Aboriginal culture, whether it's, you know, through art, language, or yeah. song. You know, I guess the um, musical anthropologists who yeah. you know dedicate their whole lives to yes. it, and and yeah. you know go around the country recording, um, and e even today, you know, there are just people with the explosion of Aboriginal yeah. culture coming into the mainstream that they're wanting to engage with it and yeah. be able to practice and and pay respects to it. Mm. Um, I, I guess a lot of the time in in the southeast where there's still mm. that hard work to reclaim and do the, the language and culture justice. Yeah. And I guess you also have a lot of black followers who just have no interest yeah. in it. For the sake of these languages having use and living today, yeah. is there something to be said for opening it up to non-Aboriginal people to yeah. engage with? Well, and this is the thing about being generous. This is the kind of pillar of what I understand, Uluroi living, being generous. So, you know, you never have anything you can't afford to give away. And actually, the more you give, the more you have. So if that is true for physical things, and uh, it must also be true for culture. Um, I, I guess the question is, are you in the place to be giving? Mm. Uh, do you know enough? To be, able to, to be able to decide what part of that can be exchanged. And that's, you know, uh, you think about the old days, how we had all the se senior people and everyone going through law uh, and levels of knowledge and understanding and meaning and uh, those fellas at the top knew what they, what they, they knew what they could let go, but they also knew what they needed to protect on behalf of everybody else. So, I mean, mm. I guess that's a question too for musicians, mm. it, that if you do what I did and have a, um, you have a, uh, listen to some recordings and you have a dictionary, dictionary on the table um, and you write a song and people love it, then can you go and write songs in language for non-Indigenous people, for example? Um, uh, when there are people in your community that haven't had a chance to interact in that way. Yeah. So it's something about seeing the language as a resource. Uh, and, yeah, it's confusing. Why are you giving that? There's a question there too. Mm. I think the only way to engage non-Indigenous Australia in meaningful ways is to be as open and giving as you can. But I think also that there needs to be a point where 
you know that it's uh, there are things that need to belong to only us. Yeah, yeah. Now, does that make sense? How do I feel about that? Yeah. Only because not all of us have it yet. Mm. So it's not belonging to us and not you. It needs to be spread throughout us and then you can have it all. Yeah, yeah, true, true. Yeah, I, I just wonder, like, what, how we can actually make this accessible and, and then whether young people or, mm. or whether any people, any Aboriginal people are going to be that interested in learning you know, language. I guess um, it's a hard one because mm. it's not like people are going to be able to speak mm. uh, fluently mm. with each other. As, yeah. you know, uh, as I've said in uh, another pod conversation, how I guess we have languages like French and, and Japanese that we know by learning them, then they'll you know, have a particular context and a, mm. a place where we can practice mm. and such. But maybe we should, I don't know, maybe the discussion in language circles is that we should be aiming for that. Maybe we should be. I mean, that's what those old people who held on to it for so long would have wanted. And uh, maybe that's what we need to be aiming for, that we will move through a time of um, reawakening into uh, having kids speak fluently, mm. teenagers, adults, and going through through that way. I think that you know. I think that while we think we can only be a, a shadow of ourselves, we're only going to put up with, going to make the effort for for that. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, well, I guess another thing I think about is the fact that Aboriginal people are 3% of Australia's population. Mm -hmm. So then for it to be alive with just just within Aboriginal, mm -hmm. uh, amongst Aboriginal people, mm -hmm. it's going to be much harder to mm -hmm. you know, maintain and, and yeah. keep alive and, and have spread and flourish. Yeah. And I, th I think language too, while you're talking, it reminds me of... Um, so Lucy, my sister, is a visual artist and a designer, and she made uh, she learned how to make twine, and she made this nine meter net <laughs> as you do learn something, then you just you know go crazy with it. So she had courage on bark and made a nine meter net, and she called it Ilalu, Ilalu, not why Ilalu, and that word means a long time ago, so long ago. Um, in the past, there's there's no kind of word, but it also means an infinite time ahead. So that one word means those two completely different um, things, mm. but one word. Yeah, right. And so maybe this is the answer that uh, we're thinking we're only three percent, and you know, there are going to be people who aren't interested, uh, or you know in engaging and but the language can tell us that we need to learn and teach and interact with it differently mm -hmm. because they're all cultural sort of connectors they're cultural whatever there's a word i don't know they're cultural little signals that you have to work differently and so if we're trying to fit this language um thing circle in a in a Western 
square. Mm. We're going to come up against that stuff, but um, the language tells you that. And that's why musicians, that's why musicians are a really important part of this whole conversation, because uh, the creative rules, whatever the hell they are, are different. Mm. We have leeway to be different. Um, but the lang if you work with language, it tells you, you think you're speaking it, but it's actually talking to you because it's showing you how to do things. So uh, I think that it'd be great if we can all engage with that, not that language. Oh, how can we use language? We can write songs and record them. Well, that's what we can do now, but how else, what else can we do with that? You know, it's, we've got to think about, think around things as well, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm. And all of these things, you know, and this is, this is the life work of being a black fella in Australia. <laughs> but you actually never know what the bloody answers are. The whole point is exploring that, you know. Same with identity, same with learning language, whatever. That it's, it's, the, it's the journey and the adding to the meaning. That is the important thing, not getting to a point and then that finishing up and starting the next project. Yeah. Maybe. And what about this project that you're doing mm. with the choir in Darug language? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's with Jacinta Tobin who wrote the um, Preacher's um, stuff. Uh, and that's really interesting too. See, the Sydney Festival um, came to Jacinta and said, can you translate the, the national anthem, Australian national anthem, into Darug? And it exists already in um, Darug language over here, over the East Coast. And um, she thought about it for a long time because they wanted her to sing it on Australia Day down at Barangaroo. <laughs> so <laughs> how many you know, levels of bureaucracy do you want to put in on that? And she thought about it for a while and I don't know if there were eagles involved, but she had decided, she came back and said, I don't feel right doing that. What I will do is write, write a song for the day in Darug language. And so um, she wrote, uh, she wrote a song, a long time big sickness came and no more big mob of people but today we sing a, a new dreaming and then the next verse was about calling um, this the eagle and the, um, the whale and um, the Sydney cockle shell and the Port Jackson fig in and, and then uh, singing up, making a new dreaming specifically to be sung at that place, Barangaroo, because it's been contentious, contentious place, but also the day. Anyway, um, uh, Sydney Festival asked if we would go and teach it to, I think there were 12 choirs. There was about okay. uh, 180 people there on the day last year, and we sang it. And they were all, I think, to a person, non-Indigenous people that engage with that, what you're talking about, about teaching, um, sharing uh, culture. They loved it. Mm. They loved the song, but you know, put Jacinta in front of them, she's talking about Aboriginal people from this place here in Sydney, and they'd never heard it. You know, there's, there was a, a 90 year old woman we went and saw, because we're doing it again this year. 90 year old woman, we taught the song 
um, two weeks ago and she said, I'm so glad I lived to see this day, to sing in an Aboriginal, in a Sydney Aboriginal language. So that was really very powerful. It's eight lines, but it's so much more. And it's, it, it's, it's so much more for us, but for those non-Indigenous people too, because it's giving them part of themselves. So uh, it's going to be performed again on Survival Day next year. Yep. Same place, yeah. And so what's your role in this? I'm the general support. So Jacinta and I co-wrote the song, but, you know, it's a country in her language and I just do whatever she needs me to do. So yeah. I, I get people excited and give them notes and jump in and sing their part and run over there and sing other parts and go and teach it to the, um, go and teach it to the um, choirs when she's not available. Yeah. Mm. And can this song be used outside of that context? Is there any talk about that? Yeah, I think, um, so I've got to get this right now. Who was it? I think it was the Solidarity Choir here in, the Solidarity Choir here in Sydney are going to Timor and have asked if they can sing it. So Jacinta said, once she taught it to everyone, she said, take it, take it because it's, it's a story and a song that needs to needs people wants to engage with people, and so they they're going to sing it at East Timor, and then some other mob they went and sang it in Cuba. So it's already and it's on the internet. Anyone can um, anyone can have a listen and teach it to their school. A lot of schools came up after um, Survival Day this year and asked if they could teach it to their their classes. Yeah, so... I'll chuck a link on... Yeah, the, great. Yeah. Borea. Um, and, the, and the word in there, that Darug word for dreaming, it's another beautiful word. Because it sounds the way it is for, the, for dreaming. And you can just feel your body doing that in your mind. This is that cycle, for dreaming. Yeah, right, right. Beautiful word. Yeah. Yeah. And do you find do you find it quite a different process uh, when you're on other people's country, like d doing language stuff? Yeah. Uh, did I read something that you were up in like Aranda country doing some uh, song thing? Oh yes, up there yep, yep, as and well. Karma. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So so how does that yeah. go in regards to you know making sure that you're doing things the right way and yeah. and you're respecting the people but at the same time you yeah. you're there for a reason yeah. you you're there for your your creative yeah. input and um in yeah. your own experience yeah um so they're all different with with the um choir stuff that's com i do it that's completely jacinta's um thing i am completely happy to support her because that's that's what I feel is my role because it's her language and her song and what I get out of it by supporting her is um, you know makes me a stronger Yuluroi person um, that's the right thing to do to support that stuff and to privilege that stuff first that's that's how I believe culture works you know that respect and all that stuff when we were out um, in, out at Alice Springs, that was a really different thing. That was a, um, for a, a 
compilation recording of young Indigenous female artists and that was in the studio. And so my cultural role, if I had one there, was to share my skills with them uh, to hopefully add something to their practice. Mm. So giving again, you know, that was really wonderful out there too. It wasn't language based, but it was song based. And interestingly, they were, there was one woman from, young woman from every state that came into the, into the middle of that country there. So while there was no obvious cultural link, like you said, we we're on someone else's place. Wow. Uh, we were facilitating Aboriginal people from all over Australia and that was just to support them to be as good as they can be. And that also makes me a strong Yolori person. So. so were they bringing their own languages or were they singing in English? It was mostly, it was mostly English oh. and that was interesting too. Uh, mostly English, almost all actually, yeah. Yeah. And so when you're singing in Stiff Gins yep. and yeah, there are some songs in language yep. and some in English, yep. do you find that each has a particular audience or is there popularity? Uh, because I guess mm. It's great to hear language, but then yeah. it's also great to understand what you're singing about. Yeah. And yeah. so do they have different contexts yeah. as to when, when you perform them? Uh, that's a really great question. I think, um, I think generally, and this is a good thing. This is an amazing thing actually too, that um, Kalina's got a song in Wiradjuri that we often sing first up. And people will remember that. Non-Indigenous people will come and say, I love that song. As you say, without having any clue about what it is. And it's really interesting that we're in a pl place now that that can be done. We don't have to explain, not we, stiff gins, but this is a question to all our mob. Are we in a place where we don't need to explain ourselves anymore? Wouldn't that be a lovely thing? I think Gurumul had a lot to do with that. You know, that it transcended a lot of technicalities. So singers could just sing and writers could just write and culture could just be. Mm -hmm. And so now I think um, we used to use languages. We sing that song first because it talks about us being daughters and sisters and um, singing for people. Uh, we're talking about doing new stuff now that is based around language but looking at putting language in, how language relates to place. Um, so instead of writing, you know, three minute folk song or whatever and translating our modern days into really old words and trying then to make the pattern of those words make sense linguistically. We're looking at well, what else can, how else can we engage with this 
and looking at places uh, for us, looking at places in New South Wales that are called, you know, gins, gin um, swamp, there's gin swamps and there's gin, gin ridge and all this stuff and looking at that word actually has been a really important um, beacon in our creative lives and looking at how that word is spread to places outside of it the country that it's from, um, how it's being used in those instances and then creating um, a song with the sounds of that place that, um, what does it do, talk, a soundscapey stuff that talks to uh, the placement of that word there and our relationship to it. So it's a language based thing without much language in it because it's been guided by the, what it's telling us. And that's how we're looking to move forward. I think it'd be great if people want to get into all this stuff. Start somewhere, but push yourself on and see where it takes you. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you also sometimes perform as freshwater, yeah. but, and that's with your yeah. other two sisters. Yes, yep. Yeah, so what's the difference between freshwater yeah. and stiff gins? So uh, we call freshwater a language revival project, but we haven't written many songs <laughs> lately. And that was the beginning. That was 2005. That was 2005 when Lucy and I had just done a um, Gamilaroi summer school down here in Sydney. And oh, the world of language and the culture within language exploded. And it was really an outpouring of that. And uh, it sort of mirrored the movements that were going on in Walgut and Lightning Ridge, but also down in um, Narandra and Griffith down there with Kalina's mob, uh, Wiradjuri people, that the dictionaries had just come out and um, people were starting to re-engage with that stuff. So fresh water, we get together, we always say, we get together, we don't, we don't rehearse, we get together for fights because there's too many sisters. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really about the joy. I think actually it's, it's about us learning language, but it, it's morphed over the years to become a, a place where we can travel in our words and our minds back onto country. It's mm. the promise that you've given us something will come back. Um, with something for you. Mm. So, and I think that's what happens when we sing. Because we always cook up little ideas about, you know, going back and doing this and seeing that person and running this thing. And that's how language works for fresh water. We don't really do many gigs. Yep. But it reminds us, it keeps us, reminds us of our obligations to others. Yeah. And how is it going back? on country mm. to find an audience and do you get to teach these songs to kids or like yeah how, how yeah. do you because I guess there aren't that many places to play yeah. up that way so no. we sang at a um uh, we sang at a Murdipaki language hub meeting I remember this was last year <laughs> and uh, so that was a really that was really wonderful for us to be invited to do that because you know when you write songs, you're in your own little bubble and, you know, you go and 
you peek outside of the bubble and you play for someone and you close and then you don't actually there is the the chance that those things don't integrate with the real world but when someone asks you to come and do that um, in places that you're connected to you're seeing uh, that they value what you're doing and that it connects to them that's really lovely when we sang all our songs up there we were scared because we didn't uh, we didn't want to sing all the wrong words in front of all those, <laughs> those oh, fellas, yeah. so we clammed up a bit. <laughs> but I think, and just recently I've been to Gamilaroi um, Language um, Symposium in uh, Tamworth, and that was really interesting because what I, it, it was people, community people who are engaged with teaching or learning, sharing language, all over Gamilaroi lands and up into um, Lightning Ridge as well. And I think what I walked away with from that was that we're all sort of just waiting to see who's going to come up with the plan. Mm. Especially, you know, and it's easy to say because in Sydney everything is a plan. But, you know, I think that our, our mob out in, out in country are waiting for someone or for people to have start coming up with the process of doing this properly. And I think it's, I can really feel that apprehension about how do we all take this first step together? Yeah. I think that that's a, that's a, a thing. And I know for Gamilaroi language teaching, we've been talking about this. We need a process. We need a process for new words. What do we need a new word for? Do we need a word for Tuesday? Do the kids need a word for Tuesday? If so, let's do that and have it relative to some kind of temporal time thing, traditionally. Do we need a word for um, sparkler? If we don't, we just say we don't. If someone wants to write a song about a sparkler in Gamilaroi language, we just say, listen, maybe... Uh, we don't need to translate that word, you can use the English. So all those things about new words, yeah. about, um, about how we develop resources, how, what, what is the best, most empowering way to write resources or songs, and then what do you do with them? What, what, um, what use do they have in community? Mm. All that stuff, we're sitting around waiting for um, someone to decide or people are doing it bit by bit and then you know the decision making process gets goes naturally to linguists and PhD people and you know those ones who who can afford to do it full time. Mm. I don't know is there anything being done in regards to utilising knowledge from other parts of the country where they have a bit more of an unbroken connection to yeah. their language? That's a really great question. And I think, um, so actually my answer to that, I was first going to say, I know Brother John, who's a wonderful um, man and a great teacher. Uh, they've got a Sydney Gamilaroi language summer school down here soon, in a couple of weeks time. And it is partnering with Yongu teachers. Um, not integrating that at all, but alongside. So linguists can see the benefit in um, connecting 
a language that is still spoken fluently with a language in revival for the patterns of how to do that. Yeah, yeah. So those fellas can see that. Um, the black fella response to that is uh, Uluroi women are looking to connect and have connected with MPY um, um, Central Desert women. Not specifically about language, but about the journey of Seven Sister Songline. Which, of course, within that has song and dance and language and story and all and, and artwork, all that business. So the cultural response to let's model um, a reconstructing language on an existing one is, well, let's get the stories and the songs and the dances first. Mm -hmm. And that can in, then inform that. So, and I think what it goes back to is that things work best for us, the way I understand it, if it's in your body, you know, if you're singing it or you're moving it or you're speaking it or it's, you know, it's animating you in some way rather than just in your mind. It's going to be, <coughs> it's going to work better for us if it's in, in our bodies. And so those things about story and song and all that stuff would be our first step, whereas linguists and all that other mob would think about the patterns in existing language. Mm. Both of those things, like how amazing if we get both of those things in the same room, both of the, those mobs who think in those different ways in the same room and come up with um, projects and plans and things. That's the way forward is to have a little bit of that and a little bit of the other. Yeah. How do you find that? Because you, you sometimes lecture at uni, being able to get the best of both worlds without them mm. being in conflict with yeah. each other. I'm, I'm just finding, you know, part of my research, I'm reading some academic yeah. articles and yeah, it's just yeah. so hard. I'm, I've never been to uni, I'm not, not really yeah. in that mindset and it's uh, just a new school that I have to practice to, yeah. you know, get that understanding. And then I just think of how loose a, a lot of mm. um, you know, Aboriginal culture is and with each other. And yeah, yeah so how do, you, yeah. how do you find that balance that those two would be able to work together? Yeah, I think, um, I think confidence has got a lot to do with it. So academic mob, you know, <laughs> pretty, pretty confident about how to think and how to speak and what they know. Um, or what, um, you know, what they've learnt. I think our mob, especially about language, we're not confident that we know. We're not confident with what we know because we're comparing it to that, that other Western way. So you get it, you get really wonderful synergies in those two opposing things when you've got a black fella who says, yeah, I can see that you, um, I, I know, I can understand what you're talking about. But I reckon that this way is just as good. So someone with the confidence to um, support a different way of going about things, which can intertwine. There are those people around and they're not necessarily, you know, like Ted Fields out in Walgood is a wonderful example of that. Um, 
deeply knowledgeable cultural man who can walk into, you know, the offices down here in Macquarie Street and talk with the Premier about um, the processes that are needed for language revival in Walgett and he can go out there and sit under a tree and teach kids how to talk. Those people are there. Uh, I think the key is to, in the face of those imposing institutions, to stand your ground and trust in what you know and trust in what you've come from and that you can find um, creative cultural ways to do the same stuff. And then of course if you talk about it enough, then those academic mob, get, they get interested in it and all of a sudden you actually find not just a thirst for language and knowledge, but there are much, m many more things that you have in common. But it's just about um, feeling that you can move with conviction in the other world. Mm. Well, what do you talk about when you have to lecture? Like, what do you focus on? I or what, yeah, what do you yeah. try and bring across to an mm. audience? It's like a performance, eh? You play the room. <laughs> it can be come down to as simple as that, you know? And, and you're asked to talk for different things. Um, when I talk to, often at uni there, uh, second years maybe, a lot of overseas students, so that's gonna affect how, that's gonna affect what you talk about and what you give. But the great thing about music is, and when you talk about it, is you don't actually have to talk about it, you can sing. You sing something and you've got people in a place where you can actually say difficult things or um, funny things or upsetting things. But that song and the story within it and the sound can get them to a place where, that you can say whatever it is um, they need. So, and then if I go and talk in communities, so, because, and this is, it's about where you sit, hey. So I'm a Yuluroi woman in Sydney. When I went out to um, Tamworth, I talked a bit about what I do, but people aren't really, you know. So what, everyone's interesting. But what can I bring to community? What, what, what value can I be to them? And that was talking about, um, you know, that was talking about how we can start making decisions as a language speaking community that can lead the way in New South Wales. Because we're, we're lucky, we're in a good spot. But uh, it's the knowledge of, you know, sort of processes and talking about how to make, plan, make a plan and things like that really. Yucky kind of things mm -hmm. that can be useful to people. So it depends on, it's like, you know, it's just a music thing, you know, creative people are translators. So you actually represent the opposite. You're standing there as a representative of the opposite. In, in Tamworth, I'm the city girl. And in the uni, in, at university, I'm a Leroy woman. Yeah, right. And being, you know, having knowledge in both of those things and being able to translate um, and relate uh, 
that's probably the space that I try to stand in. Mm-hmm. Mm. So you were born and raised in the city? Yeah. Yeah. I was you know, born and raised in you know, Balmain, yeah. I was a Leichhardt Council yeah. area. It's an interesting one of, uh, yeah, just talking about how you identify yourself as uh, you or I. Through my, you know, grandmother, mm. uh, well, and also you know, my mother. Well, gra- grandmother was born up um, just out of Walgett on country. So I've, you know, got, got all that connection, you know, through uh, you know, Gimilaroi, Gilroy um, uh, mob mm. up there. Um, but then I was born and raised in the city. Yeah. Now I'm living in Melbourne. Yeah. I'm just trying to find out a short and sharp way to then be able to identify you know, myself mm. if someone says um, where you're from. And, and also like uh, having to, I, you know, if you have your name on a, mm. on a program or something, mm. then they'll want to, you know, mm. want you to identify which country you're from. Mm. If I have, you know, any connection to country, it's mm. to mm. like our council. Mm. And yeah, yeah to, just trying to work out, um, well, try, trying to understand your feelings as to your connection and your um, responsibility to yeah. the, the country down here, yeah. uh, like living here and, yeah. and, and yeah, being an artist and, mm. yeah. I think, um, well, it's a lifelong journey, eh? And, you know, I, I often, it took me a long time to work out that opposite things can work together and to actually work out the language to explain that, so, and it, you know, in in our case, Dad was born in Walgett but never lived at home. Mm. So w- the culture and the country that we had were in bursts in our early years, in bursts at um, school holidays, and so my and our non-indigenous mother bought us up. So then how did we give Yuluroi meaning to us? Part of it was through language, part of it is you know we're creative people and we can explore that in our artistic lives and then we started to be able to get ourselves around and going up there and um, listening and sharing and giving and doing things at the school and all that other stuff and with the elders and all that business, then then that had meaning to us. We put it in our body, like I was saying. But, you know, it took a long time for me to work out that, and to be able to say, our mum who's born in Coogee, over where you're staying, she's born there. Mm. Our non-Indigenous mother brought us up to be proud Yuluroi women. And for, us not to worry that there's any um, anything that counts, cancels anything out in that statement for us M- might take other people a little bit more to get out to compute, but for us that's a fact. And so then that shows us the strength of culture that actually you can be strong in who you are even when you don't live there. It, you can still be receiving things that you need to know to grow you in cultural ways. 
and so distance wasn't isn't a problem and then even now engaging with um, you know Gadigal country, Darug country, I work over at Camaragal country over there at the zoo and knowing that I can use those cultural um, structures to say when I'm at work I talk about the beauty of Camaragal place and I get people to love that and to see that through black eyes and that makes me a strong Yuluru person. So you're in service to, to culture. Doesn't matter who, mm -hmm. it matters that you are, you know, and when by privileging or putting other people's mob first, that's, that's a proper way to do stuff. Um, that's what contemporary Indigenous identity looks like. Mm. Being, having stories where people were moved all over the place and all of them sitting inside of you and it making sense to you. Yeah. And then when people, then that's when the, the, the conversations come, well, can you write a, um, can you write me a 14 word bio? I say, no, <laughs> just leave that out and I'll sing when I get there. So, you know, then you're pushing back against those things that are stopping you from talking, giving the full story or the complexities. Yeah, right. Okay. That's, that's the next, and that's the confidence to move in those other places. Yeah. You know, or elevator pictures. Someone wanted us to do an elevator pitch about a show and we hated it because we don't think like that. What? An, an elevator pitch? An elevator pitch for a oh, show. Yeah, so yeah. it's like you're three, if you're stuck in an elevator with someone, what's the three things oh, you yeah, say okay, about? Yeah. Like even that concept to me is ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, they made us do it. And uh, I didn't want to. And I sort of, I said I didn't want to and they made me anyway. It was good that I went through that because now I know what I need to say when someone asks me for it again, I'll say, actually, can we do this a different way? Come and let me buy your coffee, you know what I mean? Mm. So knowing who you are and how to say it, and then knowing that you need to say that in certain ways allows you to be all those different parts of who you are. Yeah. And well, I guess, you know, uh, being raised by a non-Aboriginal mm. mother, that would give you, I guess, skills and cultural understandings of how to work within the, the white world as well. Yeah. yeah? So well, I'd say we're, we're completely shaped by that. And the work outside of that we've done has been not just of our own making. We did it together as sisters and family, and our mum facilitated that. Um, but they don't, that's the thing, they don't cancel each other out. But having said that, you know, it wasn't, that wasn't the case when our mum and dad got together. Uh, you know, there are stories of her family crying at the wedding. And so, you know, it was, wasn't, it was either or back then. It's great to know that now it can be both. Mm -hmm. So my story of bringing those things together and it all being great is not my mum's story because it was difficult for her and my dad, you know. That's why I wasn't home. Couldn't, he didn't like the city, didn't, couldn't function here. So they're, they're, and that was of that time, you know. We've got the freedom now to say we're this, eh, and we're that, and also we're that, and also we're that. And that's just how it is. 
Yeah. The stiff chins have gone through different incarnations. Yes. And have diff different, uh, you know, shows yeah. and uh, take part in uh, other projects. Yeah, how do you go about this line of creativity? Mm. See, you've just made me realise something because we're, a couple of years ago, we sort of were so over it that we were going to chuck it in because I think we felt that we were stuck in this now two-part harmony, two-part folk harmony cycle, which is a lovely thing, but it was, we wanted to show that we were more. And the genesis of how we see ourselves as performers and how we relate as a, uh, as a unit has the same journey as I have had personally, that we have to learn that we're not just that. And we have to learn how to bring the other things in. So, um, and that's hard with music because there are rules and there are structures and there are ways that things that you need to do to be successful. But our whole release of that was, well, what is success? You know, it took us 20 years to stop, well, Took us ten years to stop wanting to be in Triple J's <laughs> Triple J. <laughs> you think we would have woken up to ourselves earlier? But now, what success looks like to us is travelling um, and doing things that uh, what's the word inform who we are as women and as aunties and daughters and cultural people. And music is one part of that, but. Um, uh, yeah, well, I remember being really frustrated that we weren't going anywhere until we met a really amazing man, actually, Felix Cross from um, England. He ran the first black theatre company in England. I can't remember how we met him anyway. And we started writing this show. And he's, a tr he's, he's from Trinidad and his family migrated over to England and we were writing the show, we had all these songs and, and then we were going to write stories and we started writing stories and we'd write these things that we felt were really kind of soaked in cultural things and we'd read it out and he'd say, mm, mm, that's good, but so what? And that was the first time that we were in, we'd put ourselves in a situation to question uh, the way that we spoke about cultural things and we could only have done it from I don't think we could have heard it from an, another black fella because you know you you uh, compete with people <laughs> but he was a black man from somewhere else and he said it's a great story but so what so what the creator killed a crocodile and that actually made us look at oh what he's asking us to think about is the craft of the story, your story, how to write that story, or how to how to how to craft that song. So, and I think that we needed that outside influence to get us to because when we when we played, we tried to write songs that were more um, that were more difficult or more complex or whatever. And we got to a point, and then you know hit a hit a ceiling. Then we thought, oh, we'll bring culture in, see, so that's something different, that makes it more complex. But he said, actually, no, it doesn't unless you're doing it properly. And so that enabled us to see culture 
not as a thing you lean on that can get you through something that you have to work really hard to tell right so that's where we're at now you know stiff gins and then fresh water and then starting to write songs and tell stories in different ways and uh, engage with culture in ways that what is it I can't think of the word picking out the, the strands of the stories of those and putting them in different ways I think that's what mm. we're doing now yeah. we don't actually know what we're doing and that's a whole lot better than when we knew what we were going to do before we even did it yeah yeah right yeah I guess it is an interesting thing that I'm trying to find the balance of being for the people who are practicing it and then for an audience and I guess there are you know lots of different audiences on top of that yes uh, but then I just feel that it becomes this other thing when you yeah. then have to be mindful of a particular time period and, yeah. and a way to market it and yeah. um, so how do you find the balance with yeah. you know the, the audience but yeah. then also the reclamation of uh, yeah. stories and, yeah. and language that's a really I love that's a really great question because if I look at the progression of where we were at we sat we started the band to so we could sing with each other then we started to get booked and we started to sing so we could get around. And then the more we sang, the more we got booked for people that either didn't, they just wanted, they, they were buying the, the culture, but not the sound. So, you know, we've played umpteen million gigs as I'm sure everyone has at when people are having cocktails and like they're screaming to get over the PA. Mm. So then you start to look at, hang on a sec, why are we doing this? But on the flip side, we've also, most of the work that we've done has been for community things, singing at their launch or whatever. So, uh, and that's a wonderful thing too, but then you think, oh, you know, we're, we're singing for other people now. So you get into the point where you're singing for other people who don't care and then you're singing for other people for their thing. So where are you in all this? And um, the new stuff that we were doing, especially with that theatre show, it was an engagement on a different way with an audience. So we wanted the audience back, but we didn't want to give them what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And that has been a whole door that we've opened to and that's in that conversation about how can we manipulate the people that trust us because they know you know we sound nice and we're you know funny sometimes on stage and you know we're reliable and all that stuff they know what they're going to get uh, how can we shift that and give them something we want to give and that has been the thing that has kept us creative. Yeah. That has stopped us from getting full-time jobs and catching up for coffee on the weekend. That's made us still look at music and language and all that stuff and how it informs who we are. 
about, I mean, the word manipulation, <laughs> it's awful, but it's sort of, that's, that's the interesting thing for us. Because part of that manipulation of the audience is us challenging ourselves when Felix says, so what about culture? So we've entered into that conversation with ourselves, but also with the audience. And that's been the thing that's kept us going. And it's only happened for us that way because we've had that long history of giving people what they want, being accessible. And one of our managers said, you're so accessible for, for non-Indigenous people. And she meant that as a um, compliment and we just felt so dirty afterwards. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> we realised we'd become something that, you know, we'd ended up in a place that, you know, we didn't didn't sound right. But I guess that's just like one person's perspective. It's one person. But I think there was an element of truth in it. I, I definitely think, you know, I think so. But then I guess to be able to reach a broader audience with culture and understanding and, and politics even, there has to be that element of yes. accessibility. Yes. It's like we're saying, you know, at the beginning, you got to play the room. You got to you got to give them something before you can say what you really want. And I think that's probably where we're at. It's been a long game, <laughs> taken us a long time to work it out. But we're now at a point where, um, you know, and it's it is completely because of how we've grown as people and friends and cultural women that we want to have different conversations and I think uh, it's about challenging the audience ourselves and all the expectations that we have I don't know how long that'll go I don't know how deep that well is but anyway <laughs> that's what we're up to <laughs> yeah well I guess it's it's just great that you guys can still maintain a relevance for what you do as well as a friendship and working relationship mm. over yeah. what, how long like was yeah, it? Yeah we'll be 20 this year yeah, and right. next year 2018 yeah 20 years old so um and I think we were talking a little bit with our friend about this about how many like I'm 42 how many 40 year old women are still kicking in creative things in general that's either a young person's game or, you know, those real old fellas. I said to Kalina, we'll get one of those posthumous arias. <laughs> That's the only chance we got. <laughs> we'll get a sympathy one when we're gone. <laughs> but um, there, it, it's, a, it's a thing. It's a gender thing and an age thing. And, you know, I think we've passed the point where it wasn't going to happen, it, where it was going to break up. Now it's just finding new ways to, um, it's not even, when I say it's about the audience, it's also about exploring your own creativity, pushing your own boundaries. I heard a really interesting interview with Lena Cohen. It was on the New Yorker podcast and it was a couple of weeks before he passed away. And how, what an interesting, 
guy and always he had a whole set of poems that he wanted to finish before he got too sick and isn't that a life well lived mm. uh, 80 something 80 year old man still with work to do yeah, yeah. that's what you know that's what art can give you yeah oh just to jump off on a different tangent yeah i think it must have been how we first met Mm -hmm. Was it through baseball or cricket? Cricket, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I guess we have these, you know, strange connections. So through cricket, now I grew up playing cricket. Yeah. And then you switched to baseball. Yep. And yeah, so you must have been quite a sporting person. Uh, or are you still like? No, I'm competitive, mm -hmm. but I don't play anymore. See, this comes out in evil ways when you're not active. <laughs> So I'm learning to curb anyway. No, but my son now, who you can probably hear in the background, my son's into baseball now. So it's bringing back all those really lovely memories. And Ellen and Dags, who were around when Darren, was, yeah. yeah, when she, they used to run the club that it, that, uh, and I, she signed me up and everything. So or him, Luke up. So having flashbacks of all the old baseball days. Yeah, wild. But cricket is a long time ago. I remember bowling to you in the nets at Marrickville Oval. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder how that happened. I think, um, I think, what happened? Mum and, because mum says often, mum said that Francis used to come over home all the time, over to Stanmore, and just hang out and stuff. So they were close, you know, our families were close and then life happened and then somehow the next generation's started netting down in uh, Marrickville. It's funny how. Yeah, it? yeah. How is it now, like, um, I guess you're seeing, yeah, so much more women's sport oh. being on TV and... Isn't it awesome? Yeah, so do you, are you kind of kicking yourself that, um, did you imagine yourself perhaps having a career when you were, <laughs> you were growing up and you were oh, yeah. starting to play cricket and Yeah, work, big time. I went to England and played a season over there. Wow. When I was just out of school, I was 93. Played a season with Sheffield Ladies and that was when there was an Australian men's Ashes tour and a women's Ashes tour was and on. I was over there, I think we talked about this before, I was over there on a six week cricket tour in 93. Did I see you over there? I don't think um, we must have spoken about it afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so that, that's so, weird, yeah, isn't such it? a strange thing for you know, a couple of people with yeah, our mobs coming from yeah. Margaret, you yeah. know, to be yeah. I did. I wanted to. Oh, I. That's all I wanted in high school was to play cricket for Australia. And I sometimes when I talk now, and I go, I'm, I, I've done a few talks for, AIM mentoring thing down here and they've got me because of music but I have said to the kids at the round table I, I only stayed in school because of cricket and at the in school I sort of tinkered around with um, piano and played the cello for a term and French horn and so I had that, a little bit of that formal music stuff happening already and then after I come back from playing a season in England, then I went to the Eura Centre then. Mm. So all of those things in a very weird way got me to where I am. But I, I see those um, those girls now, and I, I actually think about there's wonderful 
Australian women's captain, Belinda Clark, when we were playing and she was just like God to us. She was like Bradman. She was amazing. Just an amazing batter. Anyway, I often think about her because she missed out on all that. Not so much me, you know, it's never going to happen for me, but there were some really wonderful players that had to pay to get their asses over to England to play in Ashes series. And now, you know, women's big bash and they're playing five-day test matches and, you know, big crowds and it's really wonderful. I played in, I don't know, 20, 2009 maybe, in Parja. Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that was my last throw of the dice. But I enjoyed that because actually I'd always wanted to get into a state team, never ever got in. And then I trialled for Imparja 10 years after I finished playing. And yeah. I got a trip out there to, up there to Alice Springs. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I got a golden duck on my last game when I retired <laughs> in the final. <laughs> but I remember those days fondly. Mm. Yeah. Cool. All right, we might wrap it up, but yeah, is there anything else worth letting people know who might be going on my journey, yeah. wanting to incorporate more language and culture into, yeah. I guess, contemporary music and contemporary context? Yeah. Um, I guess the thing, well, it's like that thing, you know, there are no, there are no rules at the moment. There are things we know how to live by. It's the wrong language, but there are things we know. There are ways we know we should live. And there are no rules in this space at the moment. Those are two really important things to know. And I think treading lightly where we are now is, is a good way to go about it. You know, if you rush head, long, head on into things, all of a sudden the momentum can take you places that uh, you perhaps haven't foreseen, especially with especially with recording industry and all that business. Take your time. Think about that word. That means a long time ago and a long time to come. And gunyalung yalung, the dreaming. All that stuff, time for us is engage with the different the different measures of time and you know it'll be a rich and rewarding thing yep on oh, the last thing uh i guess yourself and the stiff gens yeah what's next where can people catch you or where can people hear your music we are we're going down to the brunswick music festival in March next year, 14th March, we're playing. Um, and Giracool Blues Fest, we've got a manager, see, so he's getting us all these gigs. <laughs> so we've got a, a couple of things coming up and, uh, um, you know, I guess we look forward to, we look forward to, yeah, I don't know, expanding our ideas of what song can be, not just, you know, not just, not just music or what else can we put into a song that's that's probably what we'll be doing this year yeah.